Good morning, listeners. Welcome to Solidarity Breakfast. Lalita here. Sorry about that slight technical glitch when I started the um, put the um, program on off automatic. Um, it's a bit of a cloudy morning um, for a spring day, but we've got a exciting program in front of us. We have a couple of interviews that I pre-recorded uh, this week, and we also have um, Marcus Harrington. Uh, doing the rank and file radio, and of course we have Uncle Kevin with the week that was. I'll also be interviewing um, a Moreland councillor in relation to an Aboriginal site um, up in Glenroy later on, and we'll give you the details as we go along. So let's start with the first interview. It, this is with um, Anton Marcus, who is a Joint Secretary of the Free Trade Zone and General Services Union in Sri Lanka. He was visiting Australia for a particular purpose, and that will become clearer as you listen to the interview. Welcome to 3CR, Anton Marcus, and thank you very much for making the time to talk to us. You are visiting Australia for a particular campaign. I wonder if you want to give us some information on that. Yeah, I'm, I'm a Joint Secretary of the Free Trade Zones and General Services Employees Union, and I'm a Secretary Committee member of the Industrial. Uh, my purpose of visiting to Australia is to to, to participate in the campaign organized by the uh, Australian unions who are affiliates of the industry all. This is regarding the strikes uh, related to the Ansel Lanka, which is uh, going on from uh, October 2013. The Ansel Lanka has dismissed uh, 305 workers just because uh, they participated in the strike. And it's, uh, so now the, uh, this uh, campaign is going on globally. Even we have contacted the Malaysian uh, Ansel workers and the Brazil Ansel workers. So, so I, my purpose is to participate in this campaign. Ansel is a, a company that makes gloves. Would that be correct? Yes, they make uh, surgical gloves and the industrial gloves. Mm-hmm. And it's an international company. Ansel is Australian-owned company, mm-hmm. but they have a headquarters in America also. Okay. So what is the dispute literally about? The dispute was, uh, you know, you know, even though we had uh, 80% of membership, the Ansel refused to recognize our union, although the law says if you have a 40% membership, then the employer has to recognize that union as a collective bargaining agent. But Ansel continuously refused to deal with unions from the inception. And uh, there were some other unions, they refused to recognize them. And as a result, there were some disputes. And in 2008, when we formed a union, they refused to recognize our union. So in the same time, the Ansel, I think, uh, decided to uh, recruit contract labor in order to reduce the permanent card. And uh, when our union opposed to that, because it creates... Uh, the instability of the job security, mm-hmm. and therefore the 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 Ansel management has decided to get rid of our union. So, as planned by the management, uh, one day the branch union president was physically attacked by unknown person in the town, and the our branch union president made a complaint to the police station, saying that they suspect the human resource manager is behind this attack. But after six months, 
the, the 11th of October 2013, the management suspended our branch union president uh, under the, you know, allegation that he made a complaint to the police station, false complaint. But uh, under the under Sri Lankan law, anybody has a right to make any complaint and the police has to investigate. But before even the police investigation is over, the management of Ansel, they suspended the services of our branch union president. So I, I'm a little bit confused. The, so the branch union president was also a worker at Ansel. Yes. So un, under Sri Lankan law, what sort of rights do trade unions actually have other than the 40% eligibility number you, you uh, mentioned before? How free are the trade unions to organize and have meetings in, in these free trade zones? Now, you know, the, although the, at the beginning of the free trade zones, the government tried to, you know, prevent... Uh, uh, you know, application of labor laws in the free trade zone, but it could not do that because uh, when the trade unions challenge it in the Supreme Court, so Supreme Court uh, uh, gave the order saying that in Sri Lanka, in one country, you can't have, uh, you know, two type of uh, laws. And therefore, even the free trade zones, the labor laws applicable to all the world, all the whole country, is applicable in the free trade zone. Therefore, uh, we have a right to organize unions in the free trade zones. There is no different uh, laws in the free trade zones. Mm-hmm. And um, how strong are trade unions outside the free trade zones? Yeah, in general, uh, the trade unions, uh, you know, the organized sector in the public sector is very strong, uh, number-wise, and... Uh, but of course, these all those unions are affiliated to the political party. Therefore, there is a question of whether these unions are really represent the interest of their membership. When it comes to the private sector, private sector unionization percentage is very low, less than 5%. And uh, that is because of the repression and the oppression of the employers as well as the governments who who came to power and although legally uh, and constitutionally the Sri Lankan people have a right to join trade unions but uh, practically it is not happened whenever the trade unions have been formed by the workers uh, either they have been dismissed or sacked or sometimes some factories have been even closed down just because they workers organized trade unions now, you are, you are one of the um, senior members of the trade union population in Sri Lanka, from what I understand. Yeah. And um, you would remember the 50s and 60s when trade unions were very strong in Sri Lanka. And they have had, they've had a very um, tumultuous political history in, in those, um, those decades. Now, when did trade unions become captive to political parties that were conservative? I think, uh, you know, in Sri Lanka, the, we have a very strong trade union movement. We had, but unfortunately, in 1964, when the, you know, the, the left party has uh, decided to join with the uh, Sri Lanka Freedom Party, and uh, the whole thing go, we went on wrongly because it was a real betrayer of the working class because uh, before that the trade union had a very good link with the uh, political parties and the political parties especially the left parties 
the LSSP and the CP, they maintain uh, independency from the employers as well as the, from the government. But unfortunately, nine, after nine, 1964, after betrayal of joining uh, the uh, LSSP and CP with the uh, Sri Lanka Freedom Party, the workforce were confused because they couldn't... Uh, the, the, the left parties were saying that uh, the Sirimavu Bandaranaika is a local Castro, and that type of, uh, you know, uh, thought has given uh, trade union movement in the wrong impression, and as a result of that, the whole trade union movement got weakened. So that still reflects. And uh, you, d- you don't find um, the president and now the new president, which is... Um uh, Sri Sena was, is a president and Vikram Singer has uh, maintained his position as prime minister after the elections on the 17th. How, how are their attitudes towards workers? Now, I, I think, uh, you know, we, the people who voted for the uni- UMP was, uh, you know, they did not want to see that the United National Party will form the government with the people who have been rejected by the you know, voters in the last election. But unfortunately, it appears that the United National Party is going to form the government with the ministerial post giving to the some of the, uh, you know, member of parliaments who have been rejected by the people. So there is a problem going on. But uh, as trade unions, we feel that that is not the way should be done because it is a very artificial way. It's not going to resolve any of these problems. Mm. And there's there's an overarching issue in Sri Lanka because whenever we discuss Sri Lanka, the question of the Singhala Tamil division always is prominent. And th- now I'm just wondering what what impact has that had on trade unions, this racial division? Yeah, it is a very very serious issue even from the beginning. Uh, even the, during the time of uh, the 30 years civil war, because uh, all the governments who came to power, they used the racism to divide the people and specifically divide the trade union movement. Because uh, because of the war and people were under emergency for more than 30 years, under the emergency uh, rule, uh, was know, emergency more than rule. five people cannot be get together. Yes. And uh, the same time, uh, you know, uh, the... All the parties who came to power uh, asked the trade unions to not to demand anything because the the first priority should be to get rid of uh, these terrorists. So therefore, there was a, a situation where the trade unions were under severe repression because of the uh, using the civil war, not only to suppress the Tamil people in the north and east, but it used to suppress the people in the south, especially the trade unions. Even trade unions like us, we completely against any kind of racism. We maintain our position, the class position. And when we try to, you know, raise the issue of uh, the our members and the private sector employees, there was a time where they branded uh, us as an agent of LTT. I tried to you know, uh, oppressed uh, our unions and uh, and uh, by using those type of allegation against us. In relation to the, your membership on the ground, um, does that reflect that general division in the races? Uh, you know, uh, in general, uh, there is no uh, 
you know, issue among the ordinary people as well as the workers. For instance, nowadays there are Tamil workers who have come from uh, north and east are working in the free trade zone and they are living in the same boarding house. They don't have any problem, but only problem is the language problem. But among them, they don't have a very, you know, uh, issue. But uh, problem is this, uh, this is uh, uh, the politicians who are trying to create problems in order to divide us. As therefore, I think this is one of the biggest challenges we are facing. And uh, therefore, we have to develop our own program in order to develop the trust among the Tamil Sinhalese and Muslim workers as workers. So therefore, we, uh, we this is one of the uh, program we feel that uh, we should be continued because unless and until we develop that trust among the people and uh, workers, we are not in a position to fight back as trade union. And how well do the workers uh, receive that message of that working class unity? Um, it's a political message, really, as well as a survival message. How well do you think they've received it? This has been going on for a long time, and the 30 years must have influenced them to, to a certain extent because it's reflected in the votes. When the elections happen, how they vote, it, 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 it's an indicator of which way uh, people you know, see their future. Um, the, the left parties don't seem to do very well. I'm just curious about what you just said and what's reflected in the elections hasn't reflected that class consciousness. That's a big concern. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, you have to understand because of the 30 years war and uh, the the whole society has been militarized and uh, therefore the society has been kind of uh, deformed. In the same time, because of this free economy policy, which is, uh, you know, propagate uh, the competition each other and... uh, that the whole civil society has been uh, destroyed. And we can say there is no civil society as such in Sri Lanka. It was reflected even last election. Therefore, I think uh, as a trade union, we have to uh, develop our own program. And what we are doing is to, you know, have a kind of, uh, we we organize a lot of uh, exchange of experiences program. And we take our workers from south, to go to north and meet the workers in north and living with them one or two days to get their experience. And we have organized the exchange program in to go to eastern province and living with them. The same time we have organized similar program with the tea plantation workers. And we have organized these tea plantation workers and then eastern province and the north workers to come to south and meet the free trade zone workers who are majority of them are Sinhalese and to, you know, talk about their experiences, and uh, then only they will realize that they don't have any difference. They are same, they are under the pressure of exploitation, the same pressure they all are uh, undergoing. Mm. So this is the only way we can, uh, practically, we can educate them to understand uh, how they should come together. Uh, One last question, Anton. how do the trade unions see the political par- political parties? Uh, is there a, any party in Sri Lanka that the trade unions would see as being on their side? No, actually, we can say that uh, almost all the trade unions, their 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 first preference has become a kind of uh, you know their political purposes, and 
we are not opposing the political parties but what we really wants to see that the trade union should go along with the political parties as a equal party not come under any political party if you go under any political party definitely you have to forego of the interest of your membership therefore we don't see any of the political parties at the moment working in sri lanka are having a, such a, a you know trade union or workers oriented uh, perspective and uh, how do you see trade unions that are affiliated to some political parties yeah you know our experience with uh, the unions who are affiliated to the political parties and when they are in the opposition they agitate they have a big voice but when they are parties in the in the in the uh, you know government they always ask their members to keep silent so this is a very opportunist uh, you know politics that is the reason why when the workers workers must have their own independence to decide their own future so your strategy is to keep the pol- political parties away from the workers and let the workers decide which parties they want to vote for yes okay. yes So yes. your your focus is uh, working conditions and wages and so on and and yeah, yeah and f- and not only that we 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 see that even the future of the country has to be decided by the workers on that note thank you very much anton is very kind of you to make the time to talk to 3cr thank you so much that was anton marcus from sri lanka and uh, what described there is familiar to most of us in australia and that is in relation to trade unions and sometimes or some trade unions and what happens when the alp is in power it's an interesting point of view that's uh, it's an international phenomena now um just to go to um station announcement and then we move on to another interview next we have matthew mitchell a lecturer at swinburne who is elaborating on the transpacific partnership from his point of view Welcome to 3CR, Dr. Matthew Mitchell. Great to have you agreeing to talk to us. And your speciality is in info technology and commerce, but you've got great interest in the politics of um, economics, yes? Yes, thanks for having me on, Elisa. Um, yeah, my interest uh, in, uh, I guess, in trade agreements, which I think is what we're talking about today, is, um, comes from the fact that they have an impact on e-commerce and uh, copyright and internet access. But um, what I've discovered... uh getting involved in that is you know uh, that uh, these trade agreements are really multidisciplinary in their effects so so I've sort of become um uh, involved with academics from a range of other disciplines who are all sharing similar concerns about uh related set of issues Mm. So we have a, a multitude of trade agreements that have been flying all over the world at the moment. I mean, there's an agreement between Australia and Japan, Australia and, and, and China, and America's making trade agreements all over the world with different countries. So there seems to be like a cartel um, movement on the go at the moment. I'm just wondering if you could sort of, you know, from what you've written, you've written multiple articles on this, and in particular on the TPP, uh, just give us a little bit of insight into what, the impact of tpp is going to be and this this term they use investor state dispute settlement in short isds yes well there has been a lot of uh, trade agreements happening and the tpp is is one of those that involves you know uh, a number of about 12 countries across the, the um, uh, pacific region uh, including canada us australia new zealand japan um, peru um, and um, and uh, self countries like South Korea are considering joining in on that and it's um 
Well, yeah, one of the concerning things about it, I mean, there are a number of concerning things about it, um, but one that um, uh, gets particular interest and concern is the investor-state uh, dispute settlement system, which effectively sets up a, a parallel legal system that, that sits above, if you like to think of it this way, sits above sovereign nations outside of the nation's legal system. And this is something that uh, lawyers and academics and judges and civil society have been protesting against uh, quite strongly uh, with letters to governments, not just here, but in, in the United States and, and other countries, saying that, uh, that this is a justice system that's not accessible really to, to, to small businesses and to everyday people. Um, it's really been set up just, just for multinational corporations um, to deal with governments. And the, the argument is that we have a legal system and it's accessible to all. Why do we then need a, an additional legal system which, is, um, which has some very uh, questionable elements about how it operates? Um, why do we need that? And the precedents for it are quite concerning if we look at how these things have operated in the past. Yeah, so the common one that's usually cited is the tobacco uh, company's uh, case against Australia via Hong Kong. But there's another one that's that's of great interest to me, at least, is is a Canadian company that is seeking damages from a Romanian, from Romania, sorry, after being blocked from creating an open pit gold mine over citizen concerns. Gabriel Resources Limited is the company. It has filed a request for arbitration with the World Bank's International Centre for Settlement of Investment Disputes, a body not unlike the secret tribunals and critics like um, Elizabeth Warren from the US have warned against this sort of stuff. And according to the report, the Romanian um, residents and environmental activists have opposed the mine since it was proposed in the 1990s. Now, charging that this would blast off mountaintops, destroy a potential UNESCO World Heritage Site and displace residents from the town of Rosia, Montana, and also the local communities oppose the use of cyanide as part of this extraction process. But what's happened is... The company, the Gabriel Resources, which holds 80% stake in the Rosia Montana Gold Corporation, claims that it, the Romania has violated international treaties. Now, the company has threatened to seek as much as U.S. $4 billion of damages sh- should Romania lawmakers vote to oppose its silver and gold project in the country. Now, that is equivalent or even more damaging to a poor country than this tobacco thing that's happening here in Australia. Now, in that context, I'm also concerned about the rights of the people, and you've written elaborately on that. And in particular, I wonder if you could explain what will happen to the roles of trade unions. Yeah, well, um, this, this is an interesting thing. It's a, it is a big threat, um, not just to, to trade unions and to local communities, because, I mean, the forces that they're dealing with, you're, when you're talking the, sorts of the amounts that you're talking about, um, how any community can sort of um, stand up against, against that is, is questionable. If we, look at, um, and if we look at NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, which was an earlier agreement that had this uh, investor-state dispute mechanism, um, we can see that um, the US, the United States, the United States corporations have, have never lost an ISDS case um, but they've won 11 of them. And we have countries, even developed countries like um, Canada, um, who have paid out you know, $170 million in damages over ISDS clauses. And um, Mexico has paid out $204 million. 
And, and these aren't uncommon stories of governments having to pay out for corporations who, who don't get their way, in effect, or who, who, who seek compensation for profits that they might have got, you know, if, if the government hadn't, you know, changed laws or protected the environment. And it's very concerning. Um, and what it does also is it, it has what they call this chilling effect on government in that they, they become scared to stand up to these, um, to these sorts of corporations. There's the threat that, uh, that companies won't invest in a country. Um, and then there's, of course, the threat that um, if they do invest and, and, and then the governments pass a law that affects those companies, they're going to seek compensation for lost profits. And so what you find is that governments are afraid to tackle them and are afraid to implement legislation that represents the concerns of the community. And, and we saw that in, in Canada when government was trying to prevent a, a neurotoxic gasoline additive and, you know, got, got, got sued um, by, you know, Ethel Corp for that and basically backed down and backed down and, uh, on, their, on their legislation. So, so the will of communities is overridden. And this is one of the big concerns that these agreements and the power of the companies and these supranational court systems, this, this investor dispute system, is overriding uh, democracy and national sovereignty. Okay, the, and, and you've, you've made a list of uh, things that will be affected by the TPP, and I, I wouldn't mind reading them out because we commonly talk about pharmaceuticals and, and intellectual rights, but there's a lot more involved. And it starts with customs, telecommunications, investment services, technical barriers to trade, sanitary and phytosanitary measures, intellectual property, regulatory coherence, development, non-conforming measures and cross-border trade in services, rules of origin, competition, agriculture, textiles, environment. They haven't left anything out, have they? No, this is the thing. These agreements, these, these modern agreements, particularly the TPP, affects every part of our society. I mean, it affects your, what you see on TV in terms of local content laws. Uh, it affects the medicines you can get and what you, you pay for them due to patent laws. Um, it affects how you use the internet due to copyright laws, and you may find you know, that uh, internet service providers are having to police what people are downloading. So it really does affect everything. Agriculture, I mean, this, and this idea that you have sort of um, consistent regulations across countries is... Um, basically setting up an environment for business whereby they, they don't have to deal with different laws in different countries. What they're saying is we want the same playing field everywhere, you know, to treat, you know, the world as one great nation, if you like. But what that means is local communities then can't have variations to suit their own economies or whatever. It's all going to be homogenised, um, which makes it nice and simple for the big companies, but, but means that any nation that wants to deviate from, from what the, the companies dictate, you know, which is what seems to be happening, dictate is what they want, then they find they're hampered in that and they can't do that without massive implications for their economy. Mm. The, the other thing that's interesting is the, the, the process of how the TPP becomes part of this country's functioning, so to speak. Um, you've written here in your article, in Australia, the final decision will be, will be made by the executive. And in brackets, our Prime Minister, a walking time bomb, recently declared shockingly incompetent by a U.S. think tank. So Prime Minister and his cabinet will decide on this thing. Once the executive signed the TPP, then some Australian laws will be passed through Parliament as required by the legislation, once these laws are passed, the TPP agreement is ratified and will come into effect. But the scary part is 
Parliament then cannot debate it, or they will debate it, but the Parliament has lost its power over this whole process, although it looks like as if it's a process. Well, there, there, are, there are a couple of things to this. I mean, firstly, I mean, the important thing here, this is the fundamental problem with this TPP, is it's been done in secret. No one knows what's in the text. No one can discuss it. You know, some of our, our ministers asked to look at it, and they were told they'd have to sign you know, agreements where they couldn't discuss it for five years. I mean, that's just ridiculous. Even after the thing's released, they wouldn't be able to talk about it. I mean, these are very draconian conditions that put on this. But at the same time, we're fairly certain from reports we get from the US that there are about 600 multinational corporations that are helping draft this. And this is why I say we're kind of getting dictated to because there's no opportunity for civil society to, to look at the text and comment on it before it's presented to, to our cabinet. Also, our cabinet won't won't um, release the text until they've made a decision. So what happens is it goes to the cabinet, which is basically the you know the prime minister and his um, key ministers, and they they sign the agreement. Now the agreement doesn't come into effect until what they call the uh, enabling or implementing legislation is passed. So the TPP uh, at that point will go to parliament. But at that point, it's almost it's almost you know, it's almost already too late because there's going to be very little time for anyone to, to, to comment on it before the Parliament starts debating it. The other thing is the Parliament won't necessarily debate all of the TPP. They only debate the, the, the parts that require changes to legislation in Australia. And there are a lot of things that will come into effect that don't require legislation once that legislation is passed. So in other words, they discuss and debate a fraction of the TPP and the rest of it is left out of debate and discussion, you know, completely. But once they pass the legislation on that small fraction, then the whole full force of the entire agreement comes into effect. It's ratified at that point. Mm. The last question is, why? <laughs> the TPP will contribute zero increase to Australia's GDP. In fact, what it does, it cuts tariffs, and the U.S. agricultural cultural exports to the region will increase by 5%, or by about $3 billion higher and the U.S. agriculture imports uh, from the region. So I'm just wondering, why is this being signed? Well, that's a bit of a mystery too. I mean, you know, the Productivity Commission has already pointed out that the modelling, you know, and the Productivity Commission is a very conservative um, organisation, has pointed out that a lot of the modelling for trade agreements in the past has tended to overstate the benefits. In this case, you know, even the modelling that's been done, and this is by the US, the, you know, Department of uh, Trade, there is no benefit for Australia for the next 10 years. There's hardly any benefit for the US. Um, there's some potential small benefit for Vietnam. But, um, but yeah, you, you do wonder about, you know, why, why we're entering into this agreement. Benefits are so, so negligible if, if, if non-existent. Um, I mean, and the Productivity Commission has also, even recently spoken out about the, the process that the TPP is going through and, and has been, which is highly unusual for it, is, for it is a very conservative uh, organisation, for it to be criticising the government and be, to be criticising the process being used for developing the TPP. Yeah, even John Howard wasn't too keen on the ISDS, was he? No, um, yeah, John Howard wouldn't commit to it, but Tony Abbott has indicated that he will, and in fact we've, you know, we've got ISDS in some of the other agreements that have been passed by the, um, the Abbott government, um, including, you know, the, the one with China, we're talking about the one with China and ones we've been discussing with Japan. So they're definitely on the table for the Abbott government. They weren't on the table for the Labor government and for um, the Howard government. Not very encouraging at this stage for anybody in the community in Australia. No. Now, thank you so much for your time, Matthew, and um, we might talk again on this issue as things develop further. That's right. Thank you, and you're welcome. 
You're listening to Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, 855 on your dial. Running a, a, ever so slightly behind time, but we'll catch up straight on to Rank and File Radio. On today's edition of Rank and File Radio on Community Radio 3CR, 855 on the AM dial, we will go to the second part of an interview with Davy Thomason. The first part of the interview with Thomason, the veteran unionist, the former BLF organiser in New South Wales and uh, the tireless fighter for the First Nations people uh, rejoined us again today, picking up from last week where he spoke about a successful motion he moved in the CFMEU Victorian construction branch opposing war. Uh, the other, and Yami Lester story is, is being told, and Yami Lester became part of uh, our Naranjiri family, uh, Nonga family. In another uh, experience I had with the bomb, and I didn't know about this one until I ended there. During the pilot strike, again, I think that was the hawk years, when uh, scabs were flying, uh, flying, uh, uh, what do you call it? I think it was Emirates who were who were flying the the planes. Nineteen eighty nine. Nineteen eighty nine. Yeah, that's right. I was. Uh, we made a decision at the at the uh, Siemens Union uh, stop work meeting that we would not fly in scab planes to join ships. So. To carry it out, I, I had to join a German ship called the Ravensturm in Exmouth in Western Australia. I'd never even knew it, you know, I'd never knew it existed, uh, uh, that there was a, a oil field. It was called the Wappet oil, oil field in, uh, in uh, Western Australia on, on, Noongar, on Noongar land. And uh, so I got the bus right across the Nullabar, stopped at... Uh, at uh, Norseman, which is another story I'd love to tell. Norseman, named after a, uh, a horse. His horse, Norseman, kicked the nugget, and that became the, the Norseman, uh, what do you call it, the uh, gold, gold mine. So as I'm going through here, I find out that history, and I stopped one night at uh, Busted to Perth, and one night in a motel, and got another bus up to Exmouth. And uh, at 1 o'clock in the morning... Hayden, this bus was heading for Port Hayland. At one o'clock in the morning, a taxi picked me up to to, to take me into uh, to Exmouth to the hotel in Exmouth, the Exmouth Hotel. And uh, I asked the it was a woman driver. I asked the the woman if uh, uh, if she had been up here during the during the, because I'd found out there had been a bomb there in the Montebellos, and she, I said. Uh, any effect from the from the bomb? She said, I've just been down to Perth where my granddaughter had leukemia. So it was passed on in through her to her to her daughter and now her granddaughter had been contaminated by the bomb. And when I got to the Exmouth Hotel, I saw a photo from the front veranda of the Exmouth Hotel where all the residents of the Exmouth Hotel had watched the mushroom cloud about 60 kilometers away in the Montebellos when the hu- this huge mushroom is it you know the mushroom cloud of the Monte Be- the British tests again Nunga people had been had been used as uh, as uh, uh, guinea pigs but it had affected all the whites who had gone up there as well who had gone up to build build the tower to to to, to use the bomb and so I got flo- flown uh, a helicopter out f- to join the 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 Ravenstorm the Ravenstorm I was delegate on the, the on the Ravenstorm running down to Geraldton 
So that was a another example of your job took you where where the, where the bomb was, or the bombs had been. You know what I mean? Uh, another thing about Exmouth, it was a CIA base, and when before there was uh, when before there was satellites, there was. Uh, there was huge towers called Amiga Towers. There was one in Victoria as well that the BLs fought the ironworkers to, to build, you know, which was a contradiction in some sense because the union was against the against war. You know what I mean? But uh, if you look at that, the history of of the, of the nuclear industry, uh, as you call the the uh, uh, industrial military complex, which is running the, the the world at the moment, the British and American and other companies that, that that control the the industry the arms industry uh you know that exmouth was a was a was a vital part of that that complex you know what i mean and you just mentioned the motion you passed in the cfmeu uh branch meeting and on the subject of western australia earlier in the year you passed another motion at the cfmeu uh branch meeting in relation to the uh, abbots uh forced closure of indigenous communities in the west yeah, it was another, uh, what do you call it, uh, part of our, uh, the CFMU that I'm so proud of. You know, the union made a decision that they would not, uh, they would not cross picket lines. They would not, uh, they would not go uh, and be part of the fucking uh, Abbott, you know, what he called uh, lifestyle choices. You know what I mean? And I'll, I'll talk about uh, three uh, Labour Party. Uh, Two prime ministers and uh, ex-secretary of the of the ACTU, Yellowcake Bob, Bob Hawk, that was his name, Yellowcake Bob. Uh, you know, Yellowcake Bob, because he supported, he support, and still supports the uranium industry, along with Keaton. Both became multi multi millionaires. You know, Hawk became a multi millionaire by making deals with the Myanmar. That's right. It's, uh, it used to be called Burma, Myanmar. He has made millions out of making deals with a with a with a with a military there. Uh, in the case of Martin Ferguson, Martin Ferguson is the latest tout for the for the uranium industry. He is he's the latest dealer. I'll call him a dealer. He deals in death. He deals in uh, uranium. He he supports uh, Gina Reinhardt. He supports Rio Tinto. Rio Tinto. The, the financial arm of the of the the Windsor family, especially Didn't uranium. It. And it was also Ferguson who's called on uh, restrictive powers on the right of entry for unions. Well, here's a, here's a man, here's a man whose whose granddad, whose granddad was a communist, whose dad was was uh, deputy premier of New South Wales, an ex, I think he was a bricky or a, or a chippy old uh, Bill uh, uh, Ferguson. Uh, uh, and then you got the you got you got Andrew, who was the secretary of the of the uh, New South Wales branch of the CFMU. You know, left the branch in a terrible state. Years ago, I think it was the Tanaminaway and Morboyina commemoration um, service when you got up and spoke. That you had uh, approached the CFMU also about uh, adding the line to their their motto of "We built this city to add the line." On stolen ground, uh, it's got we and the ETU's the same. We built this city. They want to add the truth on the back that we built this city on stolen land. It's about time they done it on on Kula, on the Kula Nation land, you know. And not another struggle you're involved with in New South Wales and also in the 
BLF, the Builders Labourers Federation, uh, when there was bans placed on the construction of a prison, was it, Davy? Yeah, well, that was the my late and great comrade, uh, uh, Kevin Cook. He was the first uh, uh, Aboriginal man, I, I first Nation man I, I, I ever worked with, Kevin. And uh, I'll never forget, you know, when 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 the union asked me to come and or- become an organizer from the from my job when I was uh, a delegate on the on the first Hilton built in in Australia, the uh, Sydney Hilton. I was delegate for there. The late and great Bobby Pringle come and asked me to to come and come on as a temporary organizer because the union used to take on young uh, young workers for young what do you call it uh, workers who were fighting. Uh, and fighting the good fight, uh, and for a period there, I was the youngest organizer in the New South Wales branch, and that's when I met uh, my my great comrade uh, uh, Jack Mundy. You know, man. You know, and but Kevin Cook, Kevin Cook uh, led the campaign to stop the building of uh, of the high security at at Long Bay, and uh, it was passed by the Building Trades Federation that it would not be built, and it actually. And it wasn't built while we were while we were while we were uh, in the in the uh, leadership of the of the New South Wales branch. You know what I mean? And it was that brand New South Wales branch of the BLF that led the way in the green bands, which saw the uh, saw the stopping of the demolition of a lot of the historical landmarks, including yeah. uh, the rocks on Sydney, which yeah. built by the convicts. The 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 the, the green bands were uh, were for 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 the land as well as the the old built environment as well we 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 banned we banned, we had green bands on buildings as well as on on land you know hunter's hill was the first uh uh was the first place where we we had the the green band you know what I mean? and, and and the the victorian branch done it here you can see the buildings that's been saved and by by the the victorian branch we norm gallagher when he was secretary you know what I mean? the princess theater all that theaters were saved you know what i mean all them would have been down now, you know. And another legendary leader, the last uh, leader of the BLF in Victoria, John Cummins. Even though we were in opposing side, sides, me and John Cummins never said a bad word to each other. All John Cummins said to me was was words of acknowledgement and and support and solidarity. That's the type of man John Cummins was. And I took John John Cummins's flag is back in the Trades and Labour Council in the, the place I belong, in the Shetland Islands. It is 12,000 miles away, being looked at after by uh, by the the union uh, who who uh, who is head of the Trades and Labour Council there. Uh, it's a public sector union that that holds that uh, that position in Shetland. But John Cummins's flag is uh, is proudly displayed in 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 the town where I belong, along with the the red flag from the Victorian Trades Hall that my great comrade Jacob, Jacob Gretz, gave me to. It's also got the MUA flag there and it's also got the NTEU flag there. So I've got a, you know, there's four flags back there that uh, that I took took from Australia, you know what I mean? N- NTEU is my, is my, is my, my comrade wife's uh, union. Uh, another th- uh, resolution that I was so proud uh, that was passed in uh, at the Wednesday meeting, and it was uh, moved by by a great comrade of mine, Steve Jones, and supported by the total uh, leadership of the union, because the, all the all the all the uh, assistant secretaries were there, the the secretary uh, and the president were all at the at the table. And it was passed unanimously. It was seconded by uh, the assistant secretary, 
the relative of uh, of uh, of Ned Kelly, who uh, who uh, who sits in our uh, uh, executive. He's one of the assistant secretaries from from Geelong, uh, and he seconded it. And the the motion was passed that the bra- the Sea of Mew branch condemns any bombing of Syria, any bombing of Syria, and uh, it totally opposes the Abbott's attempt to try and shift shift again any uh, any uh, eyes on what's happening in Australia and try and involve us in somebody else's war again. Trying to, we we continually invade other people's uh, at the behest of the empire of either the British Empire or the American Empire. We are always at the at the uh, at the behest of of both them empires, and it's about time it stopped. We should be standing, and and we should be a uh, we should be a beacon for peace in the world, not the other thing. And that's what the branch said last night. I was so proud, you know. I'm so proud. Unanimously passed, and other people spoke. Other people spoke and got up and spoke against it. It wasn't just uh, the assistant secretary or the or or Steve Jones. Everybody spoke. Everybody. It was unanimous. Both the resolution was passed unanimous. That's what type of union the CFMU is. And you mentioned for years uh, when you did acknowledge the land, when you did speak, uh, the the people in the crowd wouldn't pay respect. It seems things are, things well, are changing for the well, better. Well, I think it is changing. We've got to admit there is a huge racism, institutionalised racism in the trade union movement, in the rank and file of the trade union movement. There is a a huge amnesia what's happened here and it's in their interest to be uh, because they then they can steal more land they can destroy more land because they keep it at, it's not in their mind it's the silence in this country that uh, that is the biggest racism the silence as soon as i beca- i've been an activist all my life as i said i uh, when i was uh, 10 back in shetland i support i was the only boy in my my secondary school who supported fidel castro because my dad was a communist so when you won out all your life, you know it's it's very common to be won out. But when I when I became a dad for two Naranjiri, for two Nunga boys, I have never experienced the racism that I experienced. I was walking. I had amnesia here as well, even as a uh, uh, even as an activist. But when you see what's happening to your 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 your, your bairns, your your boys in school, in in what they call kindergarten and creche in Kindergarten, in school, in university, in in the workplace, on building sites. When you know full from your own eyes, the the I was walking around with amnesia until I I got two two boys, till I got two boys, two two Nunga boys. I was walking around with amnesia, and the trade union movement, the leadership, deny it. They deny it. But if you notice, every march I ever on, what do we want? Superannuation. What do we want? Women's rights. What do we want? Equal pay. What do we want? Equal rights. Marriage. What do we want? The one thing that everybody does not want, seem, seemingly, is they don't want rights for, for First Nation people. Because then they've got to deal with it, that they've been part of the problem. The trade union movement has had a white Australia policy here for a long, long time. But the white Australia policy that they've been very successful in doing is making sure that Aboriginal people, First Nation people, do not share in the wealth of their own land. Thank you, Marcus Harrington. And we shall, you're listening to Solidarity Breakfast 
on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, and streaming live on the web. Hi, my name is Lex Wharton, and I listen to 3CR, and I hope you do too. I hope that you could support 3CR in its radiothon, because 3CR supports the fight for communities and support in all areas of struggles. So please listen to 3CR. And now we shall move on to Uncle Kevin with his satire. A weak solidarity bricky team listener when not much to report. I, I've been housebound, a form of house arrest really, but it's my own fault. I, I got off the train coming home Friday last week and there were all these... Sorry, are forces of law and order accompanied by all these responsible-looking people in brown shirts or whatever, military apparently, because they kept talking about some force, some military operation, and were throwing all these people into the slot, the, the cells they now have on every station to protect us. Something about visas, and I went for every pocket of my bag and my wallet thingy, and for the life of me could not find my visa. I, I know I should always carry it, well, we know, but... While they were throwing some clearly Anglo-Saxon white-looking woman and her toddler into the slot, because they seemed to be picking on white Anglo-Saxon people. You look like, you know, Middle Eastern, I heard them say to a young woman in a hijab. It's, you know, okay, ju just like go through. Anyway, I took advantage of the diversion and stuck off the end of the platform. Also illegal, but what else could I do? And, well, I've been in hiding ever since, too terrified to stick my head out the door because I've searched the house and can't for the life of me, possibly literally for the life of me, can't find my bloody visa. Hope you can find yours, listener. And a week, of course, when the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Kanga Mission Hanging Judge, Mr Justice Dixon, no hiding his bias, A-O-Q-C-U-P-H-I-M-S-E-L-F, delivered his verdict. In this matter, he deliberated, I find for myself... Poor Dixon locked in a moral wrestle between being sprung, speaking of sprung, spring has, it's all uphill from here, we hope, if I can get out of the house, between being sprung and his ongoing obscene remuneration. Indeed, he added, in the end, if there was any perceived bias, and my very erudite and extensive judgment on myself shows there was not, but if, as the evil unions, it is my important job, my social responsibility to destroy, claim there was any semblance of bias, it was a bias to my necessarily secret but greatly appreciated obscene remuneration. Even without the irrefutable, untested allegations delivered to his honour by his necessarily secret but also obscenely remunerated Great Chambers mate and Crown Prosecutor Jeremy Stolger writes, untested mainly because, well, well roughly 100% because, his honour in his unbiased way in most cases refuses to allow the lurid allegations to be cross-examined. Not that the media, which splashes the sensational allegations all over P1 
one or news leads has bothered to correct the record when cross-examination has proved them baseless. Well, it's on a nose. Why take the risk? Just ban them being tested. But even without Jeremy's balanced prosecution, His Honour will provide his judicial balance to the frightening revelations from Big Supremo Tiny a bit more for the bosses we revealed exclusively last week. The evil unions are pursuing this witch hunt against the Kanga mission. A blatant witch hunt against a great true blue Aussie because the Kanga mission was about to expose a direct connection, a direct connection between the evil unions and the evil Daesh Islamic terrorist death cult. The evil Daesh Islamic terrorist death cult. We reported that last week. Well, Mr Justice, no hiding his bias, said this frightening revelation and coming from my very, very close friend, uh, no, I'll rephrase that, from no less a person than the big supremo himself, no one can dispute its veracity. There will be no need to test such reliable evidence when my very, very close... No, correction again. The Crown Prosecutor, Mr Stolger, writes QC, also UPHS, presents them to me this frightening revelation, further franks my decision to maintain my obscene remuneration. And showing why he's Attorney General and also QC, a member of Her Most Gracious Majesty's Council, George Brandy's brain said any suggestion of bias was erased by Dixon no hiding his bias's ruling that he wasn't biased. <laughs> Wonder if Brandy's brains ever won a case. We also mentioned last week that very important gathering of the practitioners of the greatest little economic order of them all, brought together by those bitter commercial rivals, Lord Rupert of Wapping and the Falfax Empire. So serious do they consider the need for lower taxes, for instance, well, particular taxes, and we quoted two of the practitioners' supporters, Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo Little Billy Shorten Ambition, and the ACTU's Dave Oliver for Capitalism. Well, it turns out Oliver for Capitalism sat down for weeks before the big event with the Chamber of Profits and the True Blue Aussie. The GST must be in the mixed Council of Social Services to draft the Talkfest's final statement. Former great and beloved Prime Minister Nuclear Hawk himself and the world's greatest worst ex-treasurer Paul would have been so proud. And doesn't it show just how concerned about the direction of the greatest little economic order of them all and, and her sense of sacrifice that the Chamber of Profits Jennifer Westercutt wages was prepared to sit down with evil? Nonetheless, the great practitioners are in conflict, conflict with irresponsible elements of the evil unions over this China free trade agreement. Just because the evil unions are unnecessarily a bit disturbed over a clause allowing caring employers to bypass true Blue Aussie workers and bring in slave or, sorry, qualified workers 
without applying the very comprehensive inadequate tests that do exist. And while the background of workers is irrelevant, as long as they are not worse off than the norm, we won't say not exploited because being employed is being exploited, but the Minister for Trading Away writes Andrew Robb, and as we've said before, no need to play with his name, Andrew says the clause can't be changed because nothing can be changed. The, the Chinese would lose faith in True Blue Aussie as a reliable partner and the evil unions and the Socialist Party are being irrational, irresponsible. Not that the Socialist Party is opposing the deal and were in a race at Mooney Valley this afternoon, they'd be odds on to win the cave-in stakes. But on this Trans-Pacific Free Trade Agreement, Andrew says negotiations must be secret, trans-Pacific commercial confidentiality and all that. We have no right to know what the government's Andrew's robbing us of on our behalf, but no worries. When they do finalise it, it'll be up for discussion. It'll have to be ratified by Parliament. So if there's things we don't like, we can change them, Andrew. Good heavens, that, that would destroy all we've been through. We'd have to go back to the negotiating table. Our Trans-Pacific friends would lose faith in True Blue Aussie as a reliable partner. Of course we can't change it. Big responsible corporations could quite properly sue True Blue Aussie for impacting adversely on their profits. So, so, so what's the value of public discussions after you've agreed to everything? We are a party that believes in open government. Open government with an open checkbook for certain things, bringing us to the It Might Help to Think Before You Open Your Mouth Award of the Week, based on the stunningly successful Dump Refugees in Cambodia plan, which has proved to be mastermind material, with all of four refugees stranded in Cambodia at a current cost of roughly $16 million a head to the True Blue Aussie taxpayer. That's per head per refugee, not each of us. Well, taxpayer, of course, excludes tidies, friends, but what value for money? And when Cambodia said it wouldn't take any more, that mind-of-the-century Minister for Concentration Camps raise a wire and sink the boats, Peter Duffer, said he was sure it would because Cambodia would realise it has an obligation to be an international citizen. On refugees, Pete, no need to comment really, other than just sending the it might help to think before you open your mouth award. It's a walkover. Speaking of walk top marks to state big supremo hoo-hoo and Minister for Public Pays Private Profits Transport for attacking the evil union for causing massive disruption to the public and more particularly to the poor, caring, public pays private profits employers. Because hoo-hoo and the minister and the public pays private profits employers know evil unions are always to blame. How can the caring employers negotiate when the evil unions refuse to agree with every demand the caring employers make. Shame evil unions. Who, who and the minister said the public was sick of these disruptions. They must have long memories to recall the last time these evil unions took industrial action. 
But finally, on a positive note, we can feel good doing our bit for the environment, listener. I've taken it up enthusiastically. See, there's this report that the waste matter, the lees or whatever from making wine, can be used as a source of non-polluting energy. So I'm doing my bit, and I'm sure you are. Raise the glass to the environment. And by the last glass of the night, to the environment. Good morning. Good morning, Uncle Kevin. And it was 18 years ago when the um, transport unions took uh, any um, strike action, <laughs> just for you to remind uh, listeners. And it's, inter- it's interesting to note that the government has come down on the side of the private owners of the transport corporations, as opposed to the public who voted them in. That's a poignant note to um, remember when you, when you hear the minister calling the the unions evil or whatever. Now, we are moving on to um, Sue Bolton, who is the councillor for uh, one of the councillors in Moreland City Council, and we're going to talk about a important issue. So I'll just get her on the line and we'll fire the questions. Good morning, Sue. Hi, how's it going? Good, good, good. Now, you have been involved in this campaign in Glenroy uh, to do with Bullet Marup, which is a it used to be a school, um, and until the the Victorian government closed it down, will that be right? That's right. And when I first got involved, um, it was in late two thousand and ten when there was a protest outside John Brumby's office, the previous premier. Uh, to try and keep the school open uh, because education bureaucrats and the government and both major parties really have been very committed to mainstreaming, getting rid of any specialist schools like Aboriginal schools. Yeah, that's an interest, interesting phenomenon because at work I, I, I find the same phenomenon because what they do is ask um, people who've had babies, and I'm a maternal child health nurse, nurse at the Victorian um, Health Service. <clears throat> Excuse me. What they do is, why don't the uh, Aboriginal community take the babies to the generic maternal child health services as opposed to the one who is at the Victorian um, Health Service? And they don't understand the meaning of assimilation. That is what the Victor- the, the not just Aboriginal people, any uh, minority groups around the world would would equate to assimilation. In other words, give up your culture, give up your comfort zone, go into a space that's occupied and dominated by the dominant culture, which is the white culture, and feel comfortable. And they don't. And the problem is they, in the, in the end, they end up not going anywhere. That's the problem. And I see that phenomena is fairly, um, you know, well displayed in this issue. That's right. And this particular site, this particular school, before it was closed down, went through a series of changes. Now, I'm not so familiar with the situation when it was set up, and it was set up as a a code school, a Cree outdoor education school, or Mm. open door education school, along with um, a similar school in Sale, Mildura and maybe Shepparton, and there were four around the state, set up in the mid-90s. And it started off as um, a school that went um, 
from the beginning of primary school right to um, high school and, and right through the senior years. Then uh, a few years later, they closed down the primary school part of it. Then they closed down the high school part of it and just left the last two years. Then they turned it into a career pathway school so that if you were an Aboriginal parent, you couldn't just enrol your kid. Your kid had to be threatened with expulsion from another school and that principal recommend that you go there. So, of course, um, enrolments dropped because Aboriginal parents weren't allowed to uh, enrol their kids unless they were recommended by an expelling principal. <sighs> and so then the low numbers were used to justify the closure of the school. And that's how the government destroyed the school. But from my experience down at the protest, and that that community, it's a particularly poor section of the Aboriginal community, but they fought hard to keep their school. They occupied the gathering place, the school gym, on and off for 10 months. And this isn't just... um, young people occupying and able to hang out. These are parents with kids that they had to prepare and organise for school the next day after the occupation, um, go to work, etc. Like, you know, they had to do all of the daily life uh, as well as occupy the gathering place to try and prevent bulldozers coming in to um, bulldoze it. And they did that for off and on for 10 months. Uh, so that was an extraordinary struggle. And then at the end of that struggle, in around September 2011, they thought they'd won an agreement from the state government um, that the school would be saved, but that they would lose the school gym. Um, but then the government, in a double-crossed them, basically. By then it was a Liberal government this time. So both major parties had been implicated. And they simply brought... Uh, a principal in out of retirement for on a short-term contract who proceeded to one by one expel the remaining kids and close the school down. And those kids were expelled without any proper process um, or right of appeal or anything like that. And then when they closed the school down, they didn't provide any educational pathway for those kids. So, of course, some kids ended up um, having brushes with the law and, um, you know, um, and, you know... They simply drop out. Yeah, no, it's terrible. Absolutely terrible. And I understand from a teachers' union delegate uh, that I know that... You know, there's a certain process you have to go through with expelling kids. It's a much longer process. And its um, I don't think that process was followed uh, in this case. Mm. So the, the, the problem we have here is that um, the government is not recognising the rights of the community there and providing in any way um, for... Those that community to use their land at this stage. Now it started in 2010, and this and and hats off to the people who are holding their their ground and and fighting for their rights there. Um, I believe Dotty Bamblet is particularly involved from the Aboriginal community, and Gary Murray are the two people who are very involved. And 
you know, after 200 years of fighting this country, now they're involved in this one, and this is five years they have um, held very strongly to this. And being in the Glenroy area, um, I'm wondering if you could tell us the importance of um, this land to the Aboriginal community. Well, I think it is real. It is really important. And after the school was closed down, um, a whole lot of people in the Aboriginal community and people who'd been connected with the struggle were so sad that they couldn't even go past the school. Um, uh, but on the school site, there is... Because um, it's a site not just of old Aboriginal history, but also modern Aboriginal history. And I think we've got to recognise modern Aboriginal history as well. So on the site is a ceremonial ground and also a spirit tree where an Aboriginal elder passed away. Um, And this is actually during the struggle to save the school. And so it does, it is a site which has a whole lot of significance, plus the fact that it was a Koori school from around 1995, I think, and then some of the key significant Aboriginal fam- or one key significant Aboriginal family has an even l- longer um, association with that site, um, you know, because a-, a whole um, grouping of Aboriginal people were students at the former Glenroy High School, which was on originally on that site, um, closed down with uh, along with 240 other schools by the Kennett government in the early 90s. So there has been a long modern um, association with that site by that community. Um, Gary Murray was a student at the old Glenroy Secondary College. And certainly when I was at the school protest, I got a sense of how some of the former students of that school um, still have a very close connection with the school, probably more than a lot of um, a lot of other um, kids have with their former schools. You know, for instance, one of the young women that I met down at the protest line, um, she'd been kicked out of three other schools, um, but it wasn't until she got to that school that her dyslexia was picked up. And that was the reason... What, underlying why she'd actually been kicked out of other schools was connected with um, her dyslexia and not being able to, um, you know, be um, treated or, or trained to read and accommodate for dyslexia. So, you know, that that is just one little example of why the school was important. But the current struggle is now to win the site back because um, the school's gone, but the camp there's a ca- the campaign now is to win the site back as an Aboriginal community hub. The education department still owns the site, and they threatened to sell it off at the beginning of this year. And um, the community doesn't want it sold off; they want to save it. Uh, save the site and have the site in Aboriginal hands. And what happened to um, reignite this struggle? Because the community members were very distressed and sad and sorrowful after the after the, the school was closed. 
but in mid-2012, this is before I was elected to council, I, um, there was a car crash, a really terrible car crash at Coolaroo in Broadmeadows um, in mid-2012 and six, uh, with six Aboriginal teenagers. Um, one, three of them died and three got seriously injured. And one of the three who died was a student from that school. And that's when one of the um, Aboriginal community members um, who played a key role in getting this campaign off and going again, Barbara Williams, approached me to say, we've got to get this campaign off the ground again. We've got to win this site back for our youth. Because in her mind, if we'd had the Aboriginal community hub there, or the school, maybe this accident might not have happened. And this young guy, young Aboriginal guy, who is well-respected in the Aboriginal community, might not have died. And so that's what precipitated the struggle to get the land back. And so um, then it was very lucky that I got elected to council. So I've been able to use the council to push this issue and try and push the council to make commitments at various steps in the way to getting this land back for the community. <clears throat> Sorry, just had to clear my throat there. Um, now, the council has specific role in relation to this um, school. Does it have a special role? Well, the main role the council has is the fact that this site is in the moorland area. So the land isn't owned by the council, um, it's owned by the education department. But when the struggle to save the school was on, um, you know, people naturally went to all sorts of people, unions, um, appeal for general support from progressive activists, but they also appeal to local councillors to show their support. Um, and there were a couple of councillors at that time. This was a previous Moreland council who did, or one councillor in particular, who showed support. Um, now that you know, there's a new council since then, and so the main role is that um, this, you know, the Aboriginal community, um, part of the community served by this school, uh, live in Moreland. And so Moreland has a responsibility to its residents. This, the site is of significance not only to the Aboriginal community that lives in Moreland, but also the Aboriginal community that lives in Hume in the Broadmeadows area, um, you know, and, and Killor and so forth. So it's got a, um, you know, it's for it, it's a site where there's a connection across um, the northwest of Melbourne. And there's no Aboriginal community centre in this area. There's no, uh, there are no Aboriginal services really in this area. And so it means that a lot of people can't necessarily get to Fitzroy to access Aboriginal services. And so um, people just go without. Some people just don't, simply don't go to the doctor. Um, they don't trust going to white doctors and they can't get to Fitzroy to access the Aboriginal Health Service so they simply don't get medical attention. Um, so, you know, that's sort of, you know, part of the dynamic. And so the Moreland Council, um, I'd been involved in supporting this campaign from 2010 and so I simply 
moved a motion at the first council meeting after getting elected to um, for the council to um, take some steps um, to uh, work out with the education department ways of preserving the spirit tree and the ceremonial ground because these were being vandalised. Um, and then at various steps along the way, since then, I've moved various motions for the council to um, acquire the site from the and buy the site from the education department as an Aboriginal community hub. And but at the moment, the state government is basically saying we'll sell the land. Um, the council can buy the land, um, but we're not going to give it over. Uh, whereas the community is saying we want the state government to hand the land over for a peppercorn rent so that the council's money can be used to build a community hub on the site. Um, one really significant development is that last week, or the week before, I think it was last week, um, the Wurundjeri Elders Council uh, unanimous, unanimously supported the campaign to get the site back. We've previously received site... Um, received support from the Wurundjeri because this site is on Wurundjeri land. Um, most of the First Nations who live um, in the area and, and the community uh, which is served by um, by the site uh, are mostly um, part of the First Nations who are dispersed off their lands, who are living on Wurundjeri land. Um, but the the Wurundjeri um, and most Wurundjeri people tend to live in the southeast. But um, the Wurundjeri has given its full support to trying to get this site back by whatever means, and that is a really significant and important development. Mm. It, it, what you said is really really um, important because the um, services accessed by Aboriginal people, it's it's worth noting. They won't go to generic services because they have suffered racism in many occasions. There are a small number who do, but in the in the main, they don't go there. Um, as a person who works within that that um, community, um, I have noticed that they will come to the health service at Fitzroy and say that they haven't seen anyone for the last number of years, but they're happy to come here because it's owned by the community and. The health service is seen as a gathering place. What they do is they connect as a community when they come to service. So they don't just come. It's a different. It's a whole different way of functioning. When I go to the GP, I go there. I see the GP. I come home. Whereas when the the community members come to the Fitzroy Health Service, they don't just do that. They come. They hang around. They have a chat, and and allow some of the staff and the community members around to to you know hug their babies, talk to them, and go, 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 gaga, whatever is, um, you do with babies <laughs> when you're feeling clucky. <laughs> and the conversation goes on. There's a connecting process that goes on when they come there. And it, it's it's become such a important um, service that people would come from, um, you know, Seymour, for example, um, and they will, they will come from Shepparton, down to to have health service in 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 Fitzroy. That's how important uh, it is to them. And unfortunately, the generic community and the state government do not recognise this communal community connecting process that goes on. And it's it's 
totally misunderstood. We, we, we live in such a culture where it's all, the relationships are all, all truncated. You go, you, you, you know, it's immediate um, satisfaction, as they say. You go, you get what you want, you get out of there. But not for the, for the, the Aboriginal community. They like to connect, they like to have a goss, you know, um, and, and, and they also have chats outside, you know, and, and inside, and, and they have another service down Preston for mental health services, which is great for them. But you have to reach out to the community at least halfway if you want to engage the community. And the constant complaints about how the, the community doesn't attend services, doesn't go to school, they don't keep the, the children in school for long enough. Majority of the kids, you know, um, don't go to school after a certain, like, year 9, 10, whatever it is they drop out at, uh, because the, the, the education doesn't um, meet their needs. It's so... Um, stripped of its cultural content. It's all like the three R's, you know, writing, reading, arithmetic. Where's the culture in there? And the emphasis on science, which is great to a certain extent, but how do you teach it? It's, it's, it's a whole, um, it's, it's a much bigger and a broader question of, of our education system. For example, in Northern Territory, they have closed down schools where they teach their own language. So the, the kids dropped out of school. And yet you have uh, commission after commission and, and inquiry after inquiry into vulnerable communities, vulnerable children, vulnerable you know, women, and, and so on. But in, in reality on the ground, this is what is happening at the federal level, at the state level, and it, it's hard to fight. And yet these people have been so vigilant in trying to um, fight this, this campaign and good on them for fighting it. Now one question I would ask you is, is there any role the education union is playing in supporting this community? Now, not so far. We haven't actually approached the Australian Education Union, but certainly when we were fighting to try and save the school, the Australian Education Union didn't support us uh, because they um, they also had um, they also supported mainstreaming as well. Um, because a friend of mine who's a union delegate for the Australian Education Union took a motion to their state council and it was voted down by the leadership or, or the leadership recommended it be voted down and that, so it was voted down. So the Education Union hasn't been supportive but one of the unions who has taken a decision to support our campaign is the Australian Services Union. Um, the local, I'm not sure if it's the whole of the ASU or just the branch that covers local government, but they are intending to take a motion to Tradeshall Council to support our campaign to win the site back. Which is, which is good news. Um, good news, yeah. Yes, yes. And now, just for listeners, um, what can they do? How can they participate and support the community and yourself, obviously working very hard on the campaign? Uh, are there any contact numbers? Are there any meetings? You know, uh, what's what's the way of them uh, putting in their bit? Well, we're starting... Well, probably there are two things. We're planning to have a gathering on the site on the... 26th Sunday, uh, no, Sunday the 25th of October. So uh, people should uh, mark that down. Sunday on the calendar, put it on your phones. <laughs> um, now we'll have um, more information. We're just working out the details of, of that gathering. But we think it would be great. We had the big uh, pr- 
protests against the closure of Aboriginal communities in Western Australia, which is also a very, very, very significant and important issue. And we want to see a big gathering to save a site here. And it is particularly important because the community in the southeast of Australia where the colonisation happened first is much more dispersed and not as visible, mm. which I know from, well, I mean, my, um, I sort of got a sense of this, uh, only a little bit of a sense of it, from when I did a petition in Glenroy Shopping Centre during the protest to say when the school was still open and just the number of people who came up saying that Aboriginal, fair-skinned Aboriginal people, and you got a sense of the fact that the Aboriginal community is far bigger than you realise because yes. so many people are fair-skinned. Yes. And there is um, the uh, part of the assimilation process is where people are told, sometimes kids are told by teachers, that you, you're not Aboriginal because you've got a fair skin. Yes, we had a big debate recently, didn't we, about that? Yeah, and, um, you know, I know, I've been told by teachers that other teachers who who don't are just ignorant um, at particular schools have told kids, kids this. So that gathering will be really important. We'll get information to 3CR as soon as um, the details are a little bit more sorted out. Um, but the other thing is... As many um, emails, letters, petitions, we've got a petition. It's not an online petition. It's uh, one where you physically um, write your signature and maybe we should leave one at 3CR. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, that's what I suddenly remembered we should be doing. Yes. Um, because we, um, we need as much pressure on the state government as possible to um, hand over the land without seeking payment for it. Just hand over to the land to the Moreland Council um, and then I think people are thinking about the idea of some sort of treaty um, with the Moreland Council so Sounds that good. the land... Um, so that's the next step. But the first thing we've got to do is get the land, stop the land from being just sold off to some developer, in which case would there be no spirit tree, no ceremonial ground, we'd lose the whole thing. So the first step is trying to acquire the land, um, pressure on the state government. Um, Moreland Council still not um, rock solid on this issue. Uh, it's still quite possible for the Moreland Council, especially if we can't force the state government to simply hand over the land, it's quite possible that the Moreland Council will go weak at the knees. Um, but So we need to keep some pressure on Moreland Council as well. But the key um, body um, is we need lots of... Um, emails and so forth to be sent to the Education Minister, James Molino, and the Minister for Aboriginal Affairs, Natalie Hutchins, and probably the Premier as well. But uh, And then uh, we want lots of support for the gathering on the 25th of October. Now, <clears throat> obviously, um, it happens at a particular place. Do you have the address or will that be released yeah, later? The address will be, it'll be at the old Ballot Marip School site, which is 208... Uh, Hilton Street, Glenroy, not too far from the Glenroy train station. 
Um, so yeah, it's, it's very so convenient. Sounds can good. Can get there by public transport. It's probably about a fifteen-minute walk from the station. Okay, thank you very much, Sue. And Sue Bolton, the uh, councillor for Mullen City Council, is also a member of Socialist Alliance. So thank you, Sue. And we'll catch up with you when further developments occur or even closer to the meeting. Maybe we, we should uh, make the announcement, as you said, when you release the details. That'd be great. Okay, Thanks thank you. Very much. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.